0: From 88.7 FM, WXDU Durham, and available via podcast on the World Wide Web, this is Shooting the Bull, your weekly survey of what's happening in the Bull City, it's brought to you by the voices of the Durham blogosphere. The opinions expressed on this program belong to the individuals expressing them and do not necessarily reflect those of WXDU or Duke University. Good evening, folks. Welcome to Shooting the Bull for Thursday. Thursday august 13th i'm barry reagan i write at dependableerection.blogspot.com my co-host kevin davis the publisher of bullcityrising.com is not with us tonight he'll be back he'll be back next week i have uh i have a special guest tonight someone i'm really looking forward to uh to talking with for half an hour of uh, of your time and uh and ours uh, i do want to um take a moment to uh correct something that i said last week uh, Kevin and I were talking, if you recall, about um, National Night Out, and uh, I talked about the event that we had in my neighborhood uh, over on an empty piece of land up on Avondale Drive that we're hoping to turn into a pocket park. And I said that, well, nobody from the city had come by. Uh, to to visit with us over national night out and actually as it turns out there there were two police officers who stopped by during the course of the evening um, so uh, I want to um, you know apologize to the Durham Police department for not considering them to be part uh, part of the city uh, the point was uh, I guess that I was trying to make was that nobody from uh, from the city administration or none of the candidates for city council this year or whatever came by and uh, and, and visited with us so that was the way that worked, and uh, my apologies again to Durham Police Department. So um, I want to I want to welcome Chris Crom, who is uh, the director of of uh, the Institute for Southern Studies, southernstudies.org, dot org, to the program. Welcome to Shooting the Ball, Chris. It's good to see you.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I should tell you that. Uh your two blogs. Whenever anybody moves to Durham, or I hear that they're coming through Durham. I always tell them those are the first two places they should look uh, to figure out what's going on in Durham. So uh, I feel like I'm in good company here. And
0: what's your success rate with people actually staying in Durham
1: after? <laughs> after they read the blog. After they
0: read after they read my blog, Kevin. You know, Kevin is a is a huge Durham booster, and and he keeps that going all the time. And I am uh you know in real life in 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 real life i I think I'm also a pretty big Durham booster, but I didn't start writing the blog to be a Durham booster you know it it was an outlet and and I've talked about this in the past it was an outlet for you know things that bother me right and Suddenly, <laughs> suddenly, you know. The more I started looking, there were more things that bothered me. <laughs> oh,
1: really? Well, and you had an excellent name, so you had to just keep going with it, right? Well, yeah,
0: and 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 uh, you know, there's a there's a long story behind that, and and I'm uh, I've, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to keep using um, keep using that name. But um, anyway, we're here to talk about your your publication, not mine. Um, and and I want to I want to um, know a little bit about the history of the Institute for Southern Studies. Where did it start? When did it start? What was the what, what was the thinking behind the people who started this uh, this program?
1: Well, yeah, the Institute just has this rich history, and that's why it's one of these organizations. Uh, actually, when I moved to North Carolina, uh, I, I kind of had in the back of my mind, it's like, you know, this is a place I'd really like to work one day because uh, I just heard a lot about it. It was founded in 1970 by civil rights veterans, people like Julian Bond uh, and other people, both famous civil rights people, uh, John Lewis, who's now representative in Georgia, was one of the founders, but also just a lot of unsung activists at the grassroots uh, got together. And it was a whole idea about, you know, the 60s had ended and how can we carry forward a progressive vision and kind of the two things we got to be known for. Uh, were one, investigative reporting, investigative research. Uh, That came about when we launched a magazine in 73 called Southern Exposure, which went on to win a a lot of big awards and uh, was known as a major print journal for investigative reporting in the South. But also, two... Uh, to kind of bring out a a different vision of what the South could be. Um, There was a lot of stereotypes and, and prejudices about what the South was, but we wanted to point out there actually was a rich history of activism, of social change, of progressive movements, and we wanted to give voice to that and also help encourage it and try to lead the South in a more positive direction.
0: Now that, that's something I really want to follow up on before we're done tonight. But tell me uh, about the first part of the the mission, the investigative journalism. What are some of the stories that you've broken? You know that your magazine has published both historically and and more recently.
1: Yeah, well, from the very beginning, we wanted to be different, and that. Uh, we weren't just kind of um, you know, telling you what the talking heads and what the politicians were thinking, but we took people into the mines in Kentucky and West Virginia. we take them into the textile mills in North Carolina and South Carolina and tell them what, what was going on, how, what was happening to the workers there. And this is at a time where there's a lot of labor unrest and people trying to organize in those plants. Um, and so we were really kind of a, one of the leading places telling people really what was happening in terms of the economic injustice and how workers were being treated uh, but more recently, you know, uh, one of the best examples I can point to is we won the George Polk Award uh, in 2004 for an investigation into Citigroup and their subprime lending. Uh, so uh, we were – I like to say, think we were a prophetic voice. And, in fact, the Columbia Journalism Review just credited us uh, with being the group that pretty much broke the story about how banks, uh, major financial institutions, were relying too much on these subprime loans that were preying on the poor but also making them more unstable and then, sure enough, uh, in 2007, the whole house of cars started to collapse. Uh, and then another big area that we've done more recently is in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. And that was really the biggest event we saw that had happened in the South in over a generation. And we just quickly, as soon as the storm hit, uh, we wanted to know what was really happening and, most importantly, what was being done to rebuild the area. And uh, that's an ongoing investigation as we head now into the fourth anniversary of the storm.
0: Right. We were, we were talking about that before we came, uh, came on air, that you guys are, are working on uh, some more stories about uh, the lack of progress down in uh, in New Orleans, and you know anything that you can uh, share with us about what you've learned so far?
1: Yeah, well, you know we've been covering this story, and you know the people down in New Orleans. When we talked to them; they're tired. We're tired of covering the story too, because it just feels like we're saying the same thing over and over again. Which is, you know, this was just an amazing opportunity. Uh, you know, there were a lot of problems in the area before Katrina, and it was just a great opportunity for the government to really take some bold action to try to uh, make the improve the lives of the people who suffered so much from the storm Uh, but really what the ongoing story is is even though this was in a lot of ways a federally created disaster I mean 80% 80% of the problem in New Orleans was from flooding, 80% of the city flooding from levees, federal levies uh, that shouldn't have broken apart in that storm. Uh, and that's what displaced people. Um, and so the federal government had an obligation to do the right thing and really uh, make sure that recovery succeeded, but they didn't. And the ongoing story that we're still hearing is, you know, thousands of people uh, who'd never got the money they needed to rebuild their homes, uh, entire neighborhoods that still aren't developed. You still go to the ninth ward. The only houses being built are the the ones that Brad Pitt's putting up the money for, uh, not because people are getting the road home money uh, that they were promised to rebuild. Um, So it's a very discouraging story. And we were hoping, uh, and there was a lot of hope that with the Obama administration, there might be kind of a change of course. But... Uh, probably the issue there is that, um, as you and I were saying earlier, uh, he's had some other things on his plate. Right. Is it yeah.
0: is it a question of of funds? Are are the funds available and not being distributed, or are the funds actually tied up and nobody's got the wherewithal to get them released? What what exactly is the is the bottleneck and what's the holdup? Down there?
1: Yeah, it's a couple of problems. One is we did a, a big study on the two year anniversary uh, that found that. Um, at the time, you know, President Bush was saying that you know $117 billion had been spent on Katrina. But what we found is that only a third of that was for long-term rebuilding. Most of that was just that immediate response, right? So very little money actually was going is for long-term. Re- I mean,
0: 100-something, 100 100-plus 100 billion dollars. Yeah, which is a that's, lot that's of That's serious money. money, yeah. Yeah, which is a yeah. lot
1: of money. But yeah. which is so sad is that so much of it was squandered on bad contracts. Ice. Of, yeah, <laughs> right. Cruise ships kind of wandering around and never getting to their location. Right. Um, you know, those, trailers. You're right. The the, the yeah. trailers that were just sitting uh, in in lots forever. It just squandered, wasted money, and it was horribly run. And then of course people turned around. And what was astounding to me is now here pe- people saying, "Ah, see, government can't do anything right." Well, it's like, well, you could have run that a lot better, probably, uh, and actually could have had an example of how government could do something right. You,
0: you, actually, you actually took the words right out of my mouth because my next question was okay there's a lot of people who look at this and and their response is oh well see the government can't do anything right where 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 do you go where do you go from that because who else is out there you know capable of managing uh the reaction the response to a crisis uh, to a catastrophe of this magnitude if not the government and are we actually looking at – I mean, I know a lot of people who think that, that the Bush administration and that other people uh, of, of that um, political persuasion, when they get into power, their plan, their, their goal, their objective is to make it appear that government can't do anything right – and you know to reinforce the that that perception among among the people, so that when you get, like where we where we're at now, where we're talking about having a a, a government-sponsored insurance program, a public option, uh, it's turned into the kind of debate that it turns into. I mean, is that something that you that you see?
1: Oh yeah. You well, know? I mean. You know, let's just start with the facts. I mean, if you wanted FEMA to work, you wouldn't appoint the previous judge of the Arabian Horse Judging Association to be the director of FEMA, right? That's not who you appoint if you want government to work. So there's some clear things that could happen. But, you know, there's clear examples of programs that have worked, and that's, you know— the issue isn't government, and, and we actually did a great—we did a big report saying how great the faith response was. You know, churches jumped in. They did great things down after Katrina, but none of the faith leaders we talked to believed that they could in any way replace the scale and the scope of what's needed, you know, uh, for the government to work for the for the response that's needed down there. But, you know, it does get to a bigger issue where um, it does seem—especially um, in the Bush years, you just saw— program after program that was chronically underfunded. It was undercut. I think the EPA is a great example where it wasn't so much that the government couldn't work. It's just that they had so much political divisions within the agency uh, saying that the science wasn't there around global warming, uh, failing to act you know, against some of the powerful energy interests in terms of cleaning up pollution in a place like New Orleans. You know, That was a thing where they wouldn't even admit uh, that arsenic levels, their internal data showed that arsenic levels were like 20 times what they should be uh, to be healthy, uh, and they should be, and you know, most people would say, "Well, that should be cleaned up, so people aren't exposed to arsenic." And they wouldn't even admit that that was the case because that would require them to act, right? And so it was a case of handcuffing themselves from taking the action that was needed. Right.
0: right. Every every once in a while, and I don't usually blog about issues like like global warming because there are other people who do it much better mm. uh, than I do. But every once in a while, I will mention something uh, about like, well, for instance for instance what a mild summer we've had and i can guarantee i know exactly which one of my commenters will will respond with oh what about that global warming thing and you know the 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 answer the answer to that is well i guess you don't really understand the first thing about science do you uh and and you know we were we were talking a bit before um, uh, about the stereotypes of, of the South, and I know that, that the, at least the commenters that I have who, who say things like that are, are from here, right? Uh, and part of your mission is to help counter the stereotype of the South as being, um, you know, a, a bunch of redneck ignoramuses, right? Um, but that becomes somewhat difficult <laughs> at times when, the South, when, when people from the South actually act that way. We were, we were talking before, and I was watching Rachel Maddow uh, last night. And I guess there's a um, uh, the public polling, public policy, yeah, public pu- policy, policy polling, polling. right? Um, mm-hmm. a, uh, a a non profit uh, polling firm affiliated with the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. They're they're considered to be a Democratic Party shop. Mm-hmm. Um, did a did a survey of North Carolinians mm-hmm. and discovered that 56 uh, percent of people who are self identified as conservatives, if I recall, don't believe that uh, Obama is the legitimate president of the United States, because he was not born in the United States. Right. And then 12%, 12% of North Carolinians, and this was not, I, I don't think this was self-identified conservatives, right? This was 12% of the entire uh, yeah, survey population, right, right. Uh, are, are not convinced that Hawaii is part of the union. Right. Uh, how much harder does that make your job?
1: Well, there is a strong Hawaii independence movement that has wanted to free itself from the United States. But um, that aside, I mean, and you can't deny, right? I mean, we at the institute we're under no illusions about a deeply. Uh, conservative and even to reactionary kind of trend that exists uh, within uh, a lot of Southern states. Uh, and we kind of have a view, especially coming out of our civil rights tradition, a lot of it is grounded in race. And I think that that is explains a lot of what you're seeing today. Um, so I think when you see these protesters calling um, Obama, Dr. Death, uh, at these Healthcare town hall meetings, when you see them calling him a, a communist, uh, when you see, you kind of see this whole range of backlash. And it's so divorced from anything that's real. And it's so divorced from the issues at hand that you kind of have to dig a little deeper and figure out what's really going on. And I think, you know, it's, it's more rooted in some, what I would think is, is more kind of a race backlash. Um, you know, there was, you saw a state like North Carolina go blue, because there's a kind of a growing uh, blue constituency in the state. But there's a very Deep uh constituency that reacts to that, but the question I think it, it gets a little deeper too is there's a there's a tendency to kind of dismiss the people who take those positions as uneducated. Uh, hicks from the sticks, right? Um, But as we were talking about before, uh, where do they get their talking points, right? Uh, And it comes from the senators like Senator Grassley uh, and others who say that uh, actually, you know, Obama's health bill does have death panels in it and, um, and will mimic these things. And actually, you know, Patrick McHenry here in North Carolina, you know, at a town hall meeting yesterday he said he wasn't sure there was enough evidence that Obama was actually a citizen and could be president he waffled on it in a statement this morning and then he finally was interviewed by a Washington Post guy this afternoon and said okay you're right unequivocally I do believe he's a citizen and he should be president but it took a full day of pressure and hammering and and, and, and questioning uh, for this North carolina u.S representative to come around from this crazy birther position but he, but he yeah. takes
0: that position in front of his constituents and his base and then right. backtracks from it you know in a newspaper interview which is going to be probably two cycles before it really even gets any publicity and right. for most of the people who are at that meeting they may even never, Never you know, find the follow up where right, he he right, no exactly
1: right. and so what what you are seeing is I mean it, it's it, it goes both ways there, there, it's a symbiotic relationship between a very hardcore uh, pro, you know base that has uh, very what might, some might call reactionary views that these uh, some politicians feel they need to inflame uh, and that also they feel they need to respond to uh, to maintain that base Um, and it's a symbiotic relationship that's very clear but I think you know uh, to also address the other part of your question is well, you know, where do we see this progressive hope when you have uh, polls with such discouraging information like that. Um, you know, North Carolina it did go blue in the last election. Um, you know, and, and some of the things we point to are, you know, what's interesting uh, out of the 10 states with the fastest growing new immigrant populations, eight of them are in the South, right? Um, the number of what are called by the Census Bureau majority-minority com- uh, counties are expected to double- within the next uh, five to seven years. So the demographics of the South are completely changing, and um, I think s- for so many people, their first image when they say you say Southerner, uh, unfortunately, is still the old stereotype. Right, uh, Lil Abner, or, 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 <laughs> or, someone, or someone like that. But, but, but that's I- not the South anymore. And those, and, and it, and it, I think is important that we don't, uh, we acknowledge that uh, somebody whose uh, parents came from Mexico, they're Southerners if uh, they identify with North Carolina and Georgia. Um, and as is clearly someone uh, whose family came over on slave ships uh, 300 years ago. Right. So um, it's, it's all about how you define what the South is. And I think if you define it in, in its real terms and its broad terms, there's actually a much broader constituency that wants change and has forward motion for progress than most people understand.
0: Sometimes it seems to me like those voices are, are shut out of, uh, of the conversation to um, to, to a large to a large extent, mm-hmm. you know, um, people who, who, have, who have progressive tendencies uh, in, in the South, to a large extent, uh, I, I think, are people like me, mm-hmm. you, you know, who are not from here, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's harder for us to be a part of the conversation. I mean, in Durham, it's not so bad because Durham is a relatively young city, mm-hmm antebellum um post bellum city (laughs) uh you know wasn't wasn't even founded until after after the civil war was was over and has a very different history than a lot of other places uh in in the south and i you know i don't i don't know what the answer is i mean i'm the Mm -hmm. kind of person who is going to get involved in the conversation no matter where i am Uh, at least it feels like it now that now that i've Taken a step back and I don't have to raise my children anymore, and I don't have that that focus. Uh, you know, it's, the conversation's there. I'm, I'm going to be a part of it, but a lot of other people aren't, especially when we talk right. about immigrant communities. Right. You know, right. Is, there, um, is there a particular outreach that you are seeing that you are a part of to, to bring? You know, immigrant communities well, into that's, the that's, into the dialogue.
1: Yeah, that's one of the most interesting one because you know, like one statistic I just ran across: the number of Latino voters. This is in North Carolina or Durham, but no, the number of Latino voters uh, in Georgia. From 2004 to 2008, increased by 400%. <laughs> it was the highest in the country, right? And it's still not as high as a Texas or a Florida, but it's this rate of change that is so dramatic that I don't think people quite understand. And just in a lot of ways, all our institutions just haven't caught up. You know, one out of four of our kindergartners in Durham schools are native Spanish speakers, right? Our institutions just haven't caught up with that reality, um, and in large part, it's kind of a, a, a demonized constituency, right, it's and one that doesn't have a lot of political voice, and, and
0: it's um, one of the one of the factors I think in motivating um, certain segments of the population, you know, to mm. react to. You know, right. the, uh, it's like, well, we're losing our privileged position mm. here, right. and you know, it, it doesn't really. I mean, that, that that's not the the immediate and necessary response to a changing population, but do we have... Well, tough
1: economic times and things like that, especially, Mm. like fear is so easy to conjure up, and I think that's a lot of what you're seeing. And and that that also gets to another deeper thing I'm seeing. You know, again, I mean, I think we could go through, you know, just all these claims that get brought up at the town hall meetings and just kind of how crazy they are, because, and it's... you know, I say that as someone who really you know at the institute we we always you know put the facts first, you know we we believe really in good investigative journalism. Um, but I think it's legitimate and honest to say that just a lot of what's being said is crazy because it bears no relationship to the real debates that are there, but it says a lot about some very interesting resentment and and fear that's uh, clearly there, and being very easily pumped up and channeled. There's very well-funded interests that are, you know, doing these bus tours trying to whip up that sentiment. You know, there was one guy who said, you know, CNBC wants some angry protesters. I'll deliver it. You know, and uh, so they see the, you know, they, the pump is primed and they're ready to, to fan the flames.
0: Um, was reading, I was reading that on uh, Josh uh, Josh Marshall's blog. I guess they yeah. published some some emails that had gone back and forth between uh, some of these uh, astroturf organizations and uh, and. And and CNBC as to what right. they what they thought they could deliver yep. is that something um, that uh, that ISS investigative journalism branch. Uh, <laughs> we'll be taking a look at and, yeah, uh, and well, documenting some of it.
1: Yeah, and we're actually calling on kind of citizen journalists out there to help us out because we just launched a project. It's kind of a, a town hall tracker team. Uh, so we're getting people. We just had some folks in in video from a protest outside of Brad Miller's uh, uh, office last Friday. And, you know, it was just kind of all these um, strange, bizarre claims were in full display. And, um, again... Uh, they were all, but it, you know, we think of them as strange and bizarre, but they were all kind of the talking points that the right wing just whipped into high circulation on TV, on the radio waves, and that the AstroTurf organizations are funding them to say. So um, we're trying to do a team. We're asking people to go out to these t- town hall meetings or even just events that are happening out there and, you know, get video, give us reports. And we really want to track this because um, it, it, I think it, it's more than just we want to, you know, set the – Set the record straight on these issues. We want it to. We want to bring the debate back to the real issue at hand about what's going to help sick people <laughs> and improve our healthcare system. But more generally, it's just we think it's, it's it's a very unique phenomenon what's happening right now, and it shows that our country's in this really volatile place um, where I think there there is just kind of this upsurge of reaction, and we got to examine a little more and figure out what's going on there to, uh, you know, hopefully turn what people people have legitimate rage about feeling left out of politics like they don't have a voice but how do you channel that in a better direction so it doesn't turn to scapegoating hate uh, and things that are trying to demonize other people
0: yeah it's certainly something that that i've never seen i mean my my political awareness goes back to probably right after John F. Kennedy was assassinated, mm. you know that's like the the earliest political event that I have in in my memory. Yeah. And during the the Vietnam War era protests, the civil rights um, mid, mid to late sixties, uh, civil rights era protests, there was reaction, um, but it, it it seemed that it was qualitatively different. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just that I was so much younger and I couldn't interpret uh, what was going on then. But certainly over the last twenty five years nothing nothing like this i've never i've never seen anything quite like this now i know um you have asked folks to go to uh to david price's town hall which is occurring right now right as we speak and i know both you and i would would probably prefer to be there uh and 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 broadcasting live from uh, from from david price's town hall over at nc central university um Anybody? Uh, anybody get back to you yet on the cell phone? Anybody let you know what was going on
1: down there? No, not no? yet. But yeah, a lot of people were saying, you know, let me know what you need, and you know, help you find video. Uh-huh. So you got but you've got
0: you've got people in in place right, for that. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I you know I, I was I was chagrined when I discovered that they had scheduled the town hall for right right now, seven correct. o'clock on on Thursday night when I'm preparing for uh, for the radio show. And if you know if Kevin Davis, uh, my co-host, had been here. We might have been able to work it out. I, right. might, have, I might have been down there because I, I, yeah. I, my pitchfork was ready. Right. And, and <laughs> it, 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 yeah. it, it was something that, that you know, we, we, we talked about it before. My, my reaction to it is, is, wow, how do you debate crazy? You know? Right. Um, and, and, and I couldn't come up with an answer. And the answer was, well, you don't. Right. You don't debate crazy. You, you outnumber it. Right. You know, and 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 you make it go away. But maybe there's maybe there's another answer. Maybe there's a way, um, you know, for the crazy people to figure out that oh, you know, we are yeah. crazy. But I mean, you know, Sarah Palin, who yeah. who came out last week, was one of the first really national public figures to right. to use the the phrase death right. panel. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, has reiterated it, yeah. you know, and yeah. with footnotes. Well, we
1: actually, and we thought that we, yeah, and we <laughs> yeah. thought we'd kind of helped the Institute. We actually thought we'd kind of helped killed it. My, my colleague, Sue Sturgis, a, a wonderful investigative reporter, she had been the first to break the story that actually one of the biggest advocates of this whole end of, uh, jo- of life Johnny care. Isaacson? Johnny Isaacson, was a right. pro-life Republican from Georgia, Johnny Isaacson. So we broke that story and the Huffington Post ran with it. It was kind of like a, a good model of how the news cycle works now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Huffington Post ran it and then the Washington Post, based on that, did an interview with Isaac. Isaacson, where he said, the concept's nuts, is how he described it. Uh, and then by the next day, Obama was actually saying, well, isn't it ironic that Johnny Isaacson... So we actually felt we kind of influenced the debate, you know, around and, that. And then and,
0: Johnny kind of walked
1: back. Right, right. And so we actually thought that finally the nail in the coffin on this thing, but then, you know, uh, the specter, the phoenix rises again. So, um, and that, I think that really gets back to this thing is... is, is it's so clearly not about the issues at hand because you know it's so easy and you know people are churning out fact sheets that's really important but at the end of the day you're just realizing how little of it actually has to do with that debate and and that really what you're seeing and i got to be on. you know it, it seems like the pro-health care reform people were kind of out organized they're kind of caught flat-footed because it really what's happening is you know these very angry people are just showing up in bigger numbers and it took like a full week for the people on the pro-reform side to kind of catch up and say oh wow maybe we should be there Full force and kind of create a space so that people can keep well, talking. I, you know? I think
0: one of the one of the problems there is that pro reform, pro healthcare reform folks uh, are looking at single payer. Mm-hmm. We're looking at something much further than we know we're going to get. Right. And the opening gambit from the Obama administration and the mainstream part of the Democratic Party was already a compromise. Right, and they right. came into the they came to the table saying, "Okay, we're going to compromise." with you thinking that the republican count their counterparts in the in the senate would compromise with them they'd right. be able to work together chuck grassley
1: yeah, is Senator one of the gang of six? <laughs> is the leader of the Republican
0: yeah. negotiating team. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 people expected a certain degree of reasonability right. there and they didn't get it.
1: Right. You know? Right. And and somebody, you know, people summed up the whole Clinton uh, disaster on health care reform in the 90s. I hope somebody sums up what happened here because it almost feels it's not the well, same development but just that you started from a position of weakness and then you whittled it down from there. It was almost like a naivete about the level opposition that's going to be out there and you know, power Powerful interests stand to lose billions of dollars out of their very lucrative system that's not working for uh, everyday people, but it's definitely working for them. And to think that they would take it laying down—maybe um, they really didn't think that was uh, going to happen. But that's how it seems uh, when you see the level of compromises that right. came out from the beginning.
0: Right. Very quickly, um, as we as we run out of time, um, I, I want to ask you one question. We did not we did not go over this, so uh, you know, hope, hopefully yeah, this won't. No uh, yeah. Um, when I when I read like Josh Marshall, Josh. Marshall's blog, um, or or even Atrios, or some places like that. Whenever there's a bad Southern thing that happens, oh, yeah. there's always somebody who writes in and says, "Why didn't we let him secede?
1: <laughs> right.
0: Why didn't we just let him go? Sh- should should <laughs> they have? You know what what what, what when? I, and I know you see that often too. Yeah. What what how do you react? There's to that?
1: actually a couple of historians who have looked into this very what if scenario. You know, it's like a whole form of fiction, and they say that actually both the uh, United States without the South and the South would have ended up more progressive because in the South at the time it would have been majority African American and they would have taken over and made a more progressive place and the rest of the country would have been more progressive and uh, William Appleman Williams is one of the historians who has that right. theory But I, uh, I know but a anyway. novelist
0: who's written that book too
1: and we'll <laughs> talk about it after the program that <laughs> in the next program
0: Chris Crom from the Institute for Southern Studies southernstudies.org thank you very much for being my guest I'm Barry Reagan I write at dependableerection.blogspot.com Kevin Day Davis, who publishes Bull City Rising, will be back next week. Have a great week, folks. We'll see you on Shooting the Bull next Thursday.
1: I'm sitting on top of the world, just rolling along, rolling along. I'm quitting the blues of the world, just singing a song, singing a song. Hallelujah, I just found the par, sunny par, get ready to
0: call, just like Humpty Dumpty, I'm ready to fall, I'm sitting on top of the world, just rolling along, rolling along.
1: Yeah. I'm ready to call,
0: just like Humpty Dumpty, I'm ready to fall, I'm sitting on
1: top of the world.